Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Matt Green. Matt Green is the subject of the new documentary film, The World Before Your Feet, directed by Jeremy Workman and distributed by Greenwich Entertainment. For over six years, and for reasons he can't quite explain, Matt Green has been walking every block of every street in New York City, a journey of more than 8,000 miles. This is the story of one man's unusual personal quest and the unexpected journey of discovery, humanity, and wonder that ensues. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Let's start by getting a sense of who you are, and can I ask you to tell us about your childhood? <laughs> uh, sure. See, see what I can remember. So I was born and grew up in a small town in central Virginia, a town called Ashland. I I don't know. I think I had a fairly standard childhood. Um, you know, went to school, played in the woods afterwards, uh, played basketball, um, you know, ran around with the neighborhood kids. My parents um, both worked for the state of Virginia in various capacities in different departments and things like that. I started after I finished um, high school. I started an engineering school in college, um, which was never something I was particularly interested in. It was just um, a major suggested for me by the guidance counselors. Then, you know, you start going to school, and one year goes by, two years go by, and you still don't really love what you're doing, but you spent so much time working on it so far, it seems like you can't really throw it away without a, a better idea of what to do. So before I knew it, I was a, a civil engineer. And um, I did that for a number of years, and I was always, though, trying to think of some way to not be a civil engineer anymore. And I had a bunch of, you know, half-baked ideas that never really went anywhere. And um, then finally, I hit on one that worked. I was living in New York City, and I was um, doing a lot of long walks around the city. And I started thinking about the idea of doing a really long walk, like not just within a place, but to somewhere that was far away. So I had the idea of walking across America. And I didn't know if that's something you could do or not. So I looked on the internet and I found this guy named Gary House, who had done it a few times. And um, I think as soon as I saw that, that someone had done it and I knew it was possible, then it kind of got in this part of my brain that for things that seem like they're unlikely, but that I know are actually going to happen sometime. Um, so I made this plan. I gave myself a year to find another job or at least find a career direction that I was excited about. And if I didn't do that in a year, I had to quit my job and do this walk across America. The year came and went. Oh, by the way, I should say a key part of this plan was that after I had that idea, I then started telling everybody I knew about it so that when when the time came, I wouldn't be able to chicken out because everyone would know that this deal I'd made with myself. So a year came and went. I had not found a new job. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I I went through on, on what I said I would do, and I quit. And took me about another year, but I, I finally started on my walk across the country, and I did that back in 2010. Um, I went from Rockaway Beach, New York, to Rockaway Beach, Oregon. I was trying to figure out a destination on the 
Pacific Ocean, and I discovered there was a town that had the same name as the town that I was planning to start in. Rockaway Beach in New York to Rockaway Beach in Oregon is a distance of more than 3,000 miles. That seems stunning just to say that out loud and think about that in terms of walking. But of course, in some ways, it's a precursor to a more than 8,000 mile walk um, covering New York City. Before we move on to the current walking project, do tell us a little more about that. uh, I I hesitate to call it the starter walk, but the uh, starter (laughs) walk across the country. Yeah, that was just my training walk for the um, for New York one. <laughs> uh, no, that's when I was starting that walk. People were like, "Oh, how are you going to train for it?" I was like, "I don't know. I don't think you. I don't think you just go walk a thousand miles to train for a three thousand mile walk." So I guess I'll just get the training along the way. That was a, a, an incredible experience. That that walk across America. It took me about five months to do it, and um, that guy I mentioned, Gary House, who who's the one who I had found who had walked across America. When I found his website. There was a picture of him pushing a cart with all this stuff in it. It was a like converted three-wheel jogging stroller. And I saw that picture, and I thought, that's the stupidest-looking thing I've ever seen in my life. And then a day went by, and I was back at work the next day, and I was still thinking about walking across the country. And I was thinking about how, how much I hated the weight of a big backpack on a backpacking trip. And then I, it took about 24 hours, and then I was convinced that that stupid-looking cart was actually brilliant and the way to go. I emailed him, and I got his, uh, his recommendation on, in terms of carts. He, he recommended this guy in Oregon, Roger Berg, who basically just he has this like two-, three-person operation um, that basically works out of his, his little workshop, and they hand weld these these strollers together, these runabout strollers. And um, I just contacted him, and he just sent me one uh, for free. So I had this stroller that I was pushing everything in. I would just walk until it started getting on toward evening, and then I would start knocking on people's doors and asking if I could camp in their yard. Because in this crazy cart I was pushing, you know, I had a tent and sleeping bag and everything. And, you know, that was my plan from the beginning, and so obviously I thought that it would work, that I would be able to find places to stay, but I assumed sometimes I'd have to knock on you know, 10 doors, 15 doors, something like that, before I could find someone who would let me stay on their property. Um, But it was actually far easier than that. It was about three in every four people uh, would agree to let me stay with them. You know, some of them would just say, sure, you can put your tent over there, and they'd go back inside their house. I'd never see them again. Uh, But a lot of people would come out, and they'd talk to me, and I'd start putting my tent up, and they'd They'd get comfortable with me being there because, you know, you, as a human, you kind of can decide pretty quickly whether or not you think someone's on the level. And so by the time I had my tent set up, we had talked a while, and they and they felt comfortable. They, you know, thought I was a trustworthy person. And so then they'd invite me in for dinner, um, or we'd have, uh, you know, they'd, they'd let me take a shower or let me do my laundry. Um, just all these kind of very generous little acts that, that, made my life really wonderful, each one of them at the, at the moment. So that was one of the, the major things about that walk was the, the kind of um, reaffirming nature of it in terms of, of having faith in people. Talk us through that transition from 2010 mm-hmm. to embarking on this project and, and perhaps give us some context as to what this current project is. Sure. So when I started the Walk Across America, I kind of figured... Maybe I'll do this walk and then I'll find some regular job again. You know, I kind of saw it as an extended vacation. 
Um, it, it took five months, so you know it's a long time, but it's not like a, a life-changing amount of time. But then when I finished the walk and I came back, and I just spent these five months living in this way that required almost no money, uh, it really changed my calculations in terms of what it is that I needed to do to get by in life. So that made it pretty hard for me to go back to a desk job, um, you know, unless I could find something I was particularly interested in. But the idea of, of having a job that was uh, not very fulfilling to me um, for an amount of money that I didn't think I needed anymore, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really make that, that decision anymore to do that. I came back to New York and I just worked some odd jobs here and there. I had heard of people walking every block of Manhattan, which was a fascinating idea to me. But just that very uh, thorough way of of inspecting a place, um, just to get you to all, all the parts of it that you otherwise wouldn't end up in. So I started just thinking about doing that, but in all five boroughs. I was just trying to figure out how I could possibly make it work, you know, how, how I could spend all this time doing it without really having an income. Um, and I was thinking, you know, with the cheapest room I could possibly live in in New York, I'd, I'd still have to find some way to, like, have a sponsorship from a shoe company or something like that. And started trying to write a letter to some shoe company, and it just didn't ever feel right. So it felt really weird to me. And so... I was simultaneously reading about this woman named Peace Pilgrim, who basically gave up her life and gave up all of her possessions, including all the money that she had. And this was in 1953. She was a 45-year-old woman, and she started just walking across America with only the things in her pockets. And um, she would just walk until people offered her places to stay or, or things to eat, and otherwise... She would sleep beside the road, and she would fast. Uh, she made it across America just, just on the kindness of strangers. And then she turned around and did it again and again for the rest of her life, for the last 28 years of her life. She was just an, an, a totally destitute person, um, but doing this thing that, that made her as fulfilled as she could be. And so I just, you know, that made me and my little cart full of stuff feel like I was living some you know, lavish lifestyle compared to her. And so I was just thinking, well, why do I have to have an apartment? Maybe I can just not have an apartment, not pay rent. Maybe that's the way that I can, I can make this walk work financially. And so that's what I did. And I started the walk on New Year's Eve going into 2012. And my plan was that I would just ask friends if I could sleep on their couch for a few days at a time. One thing that I didn't realize would be a, a valuable source of of places to stay is cat sitting. So I had a couple friends who had cats. They'd asked me to come stay at their place for a week or two weeks while they were gone. And then they would tell their friends who needed cat sitters. And so my network kind of started expanding. So now I'll often and be at places for somewhat extended periods of time, uh, just taking care of a cat. The timeline of the walk started growing and growing as I started including a lot more research and writing and blogging as part of the walk. And so the the timeline went from two and a half years out to what's now seven plus years. Yeah, so for the past seven years and counting, I've been walking every block of the five boroughs of New York City, um, also including parks and cemeteries and beaches and bridges and other assorted outdoor areas. 
I've walked almost 9,100 miles now, and there's still a few hundred miles to go. I've consistently been very bad at estimating how much is left, so I don't really try very hard anymore, but something in the few hundred of miles range, I would say. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydreaming boy. And I'm lost in a daydream. Dreaming about my bundle of joy. And even if time ain't really on my side, it's one of those days for taking a walk outside. I'm blowing the day to take a walk in the sun. It seems as if perhaps your life has now is, is now characterized or has been subsumed by this whole lifestyle of being an itinerant traveler and occupier of the world. Have your expectations had to adapt accordingly or was this always the plan? Um, that's a good question. I think that the fact that those two and a half years were going to include every block of New York City made them feel, like even at the beginning, even though I could say it was two and a half years and that sounds manageable, it felt like an infinite amount of time to me. So I think that I had already kind of started seeing myself in that way that you just described, even when I thought it was only going to take two and a half years because it just seemed like this endless journey was ahead of me. The number of years I was attaching to it was almost some number that existed from some parallel practical universe that didn't have any real meaning to me because to me it just felt like this infinite journey I was about to embark on. In the film, you you agree with someone who observes that this project for you is a mission. You've mentioned the Peace Pilgrim. I, I wonder in what way you might think of this project as a pilgrimage. I think there are definitely some parallels. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm doing. You know, I, I spend a lot of time doing what I'm doing, but in terms of, like, how to describe it, that's not something I'm good at. It, it, I, I feel resonance with the idea of a pilgrimage, for sure. But I don't know enough about pilgrimages, and I don't know enough about what I'm doing, really, to... Um, <laughs> to have a, a better way to, to describe it other than to say that I I just feel this kinship with that idea. The more modern idea of urban wandering perhaps ties back to Charles Baudelaire and the flaneur and uh, what's called psychogeography. Mm-hmm. And the best definition I can find of that is from Guy Debord, and he, he describes it as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organized or not, on the emotions and behavior of individuals, and a total dissolution of the boundaries between art and life. I wonder if you think of yourself in some way as this sort of modern-day version of a flaneur or a psychogeographer. What well, you were describing, you know, the dissolving of the boundaries between art and life, you know, that's something, as, as you were saying that, that I, I really... Um, latched onto that idea. I like that idea. But I don't really, um, I don't know. I, I just don't think of walking very academically. And in some ways, I'm almost against it, I would say. I just, I like doing the walking more than I like thinking about doing the walking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, 
to some extent, I feel like people who are writing a lot about walking should just go walk more. (laughs) 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 Um, But that's not to say that I I don't agree with a lot of those things, but um, I just, uh, I have a little bit of an aversion to thinking about what I'm doing too much, I think is, is my answer to that. I'm going to misquote this, so I, I hope this is reasonably accurate, but the author Rebecca Solnit wrote a book um, called Wanderlust, and yeah. in it, I think somewhere she refers to this idea that inherently we as uh, a species, as an animal, we are we are bipeds, so we have essentially these, these two long sticks hanging from the bottom of our, our bodies, and... <laughs> You know, inherently, they're unstable. Like, no one sees a stool that is two-legged. Um, and, and so we have to be in motion, because if we're not in motion, we're inherently unstable. And so we are designed to embody the world in motion. And, and for me, it feels as if how you're describing walking as just an act that should just be done. That, mm-hmm. that calls that to mind for me. The thing that, that really appealed to me about, about doing this walk was was the, the way that walking allows you to, um, you know, to inspect the world and, and to kind of fulfill your curiosity about the world. Initially, the, the physical act of walking was kind of a tool for me to be able to do the things that, to have the experiences that walking provides. But as time has gone on, I have come to agree with that idea that, the actual just physical act of moving through space. There's something very powerful and fulfilling in that alone. There's something about just that that feeling of moving through the world that feels very human and it's just it feels very good. It just makes you feel satisfied to do it. And so so I started to realize that even totally apart from this this way that walking allows you to be in the world and to see the world just the physical act of walking is so inherent to being a human. And it just touches on so many parts of our brain, I think. Would you perhaps talk a little bit about some of those experiences that you've had and the discoveries you've made and your own personal revelations about how you have encountered the built and natural environment as you've been walking? I think, you know, I had some real realizations about... um, just how you encounter the world when you walk um, on my cross-country walk. And it was kind of unintentional. I just, you know, I was interested in this big idea of walking across the country. But there were so many details involved in the planning of it. And um, so, you know, people were asking me, oh, what route are you going to take? What route are you going to take? And I just, I didn't know how to pick a route. There's so many millions of options. People were telling me all these places I had to go to. And so I just had this giant list of, of places to go to, which were all scattered about the country, which I couldn't possibly all go to in one walk. And so I was just faced with this idea of deciding which which wonderful places to not go see. And that was, you know, not the way I wanted to start off this this huge adventure. So I eventually just threw, threw the, the list of places out the window and... I succumbed to laziness, and I just asked the Internet to give me walking directions to get across the country, just as if you would ask it to to give you walking directions to the movie theater. So I I basically just had this list of directions that would get me from one side of the country to the other, and I had no idea 
what was going to be along the way. I just started walking, and I started realizing, though, that, that by not having a particular destination or an exciting thing up ahead that I was looking forward to, I started focusing a lot more on what was around me at any given moment. Um, because when you, when you have, when you're not looking forward to something, you're not counting down the steps to getting somewhere else. You're not thinking about trying to just get through this place so you can get to where you really want to be. Um, and so I just had nothing to do with myself other than to look around where I was and to try to appreciate where I was. And I started realizing that all these places I had driven through before that seemed really boring are not, in no way boring. They're only boring at very high speed. You start you start making connections between things that you see. You start realizing, like, I would be in one area and I would see all these Bud Light cans thrown out the window. And then I would see all these Coors Light cans, you know, 10 miles down the road. And I started wondering how could people have such particular preferences for one beer over another that I would notice it in terms of the roadside garbage. And then, you know, say I was seeing a lot of Coors Light cans, and then I passed a gas station, and it had a big sale on Coors Light. And I started realizing, oh, I guess the people who throw their beer cans out the window are also people who are just looking to spend as little money on beer as possible. You know, just that way you start drawing connections between things and start seeing little, you know, what many would call boring stories in the world, but you just start learning about things in this much deeper way that is really only interesting to you because you're the one who saw the cans, you're the one who saw the gas station. It's not a great story to tell anyone, but it makes you feel much closer to the place where you are because you now know these intimate things about it. I came to really love that feeling of feeling close to a place because it makes you feel at home in a place and then you're at home in another place and then you're at home in another place. And the whole world kind of starts feeling like home in a way. Yeah, I just I would just feel this wonderful sense of like belonging to these places um, because I took the time to care about them and to inspect them and to ask questions about them. And um, it just made me care about the world and, and feel part of the world in this way that I hadn't experienced before. You get a sense of that too from your blog, which is uh, I'mJustWalking.com, and it's walking without yeah. without a G. And that sense that you described about feeling more vested in the world because you ask questions of it comes through very clearly. And I, I guess I would invite people to go to that that blog, not least because they can uncover some of your extended research when you become curious about a place. Uh, you get to do a little bit more digging and and form some of those connections you talked about. One that springs to mind is uh, a Queen's Garage 
connected to a high-end salon in Manhattan <laughs> and the Rodolfo Valentin 694 signage warning? <laughs> right. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I was uh, walking through this area of Flushing, Queens that is very... It kind of like just lots of auto garages, and I guess it's like light light industry. There's lots of metal working places, sign making shops, stuff like that. And so it's several blocks just packed with those kind of businesses. And um, there's an interesting mural. It's this funny mural of these people like out on a yacht in the water somewhere. It's just kind of a little bit out of place in this otherwise grimy kind of area. So it was funny. I saw it a second time, and so I took a, took a picture of it again. I didn't even notice this one when I was out there. And this is kind of part of the value of taking a lot of photos is, you know, when you're looking at a photo, you can just really stare at it forever and, and notice all the things in the background that your brain doesn't really catch when you're out there in person. And so I took a photo of this mural, and then I just kind of snapped another photo just to make sure I had the context of it so I could locate it on a map. So I took a, a photo of what I thought was the address of the place, on which was on the awning right next to the to the um, garage where the mural was. And then when I got home, I was looking at the awning, and it has this number on it, 694, uh, which is not an address in Queens, because essentially all Queens addresses ha are, are like have a hyphen in the middle, basically. So I realized that was not the address of this place. And also, it said in very fancy lettering, Rodolfo Valentin. Uh, that name sounded kind of familiar to me, and I didn't know why. And and again, it was just, just this type of this kind of cursive, wispy lettering that you would never see in on an auto garage. And so I looked up this name, and it turns out the reason that it sounded familiar to me is because there's the famous actor, Rodolfo, what is it, Rudolph Valentino? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I was thinking of, but it turns out there is a hairstylist in Manhattan who caters to very high-end clientele named Rodolfo Valentin. Then it became even more puzzling why this awning... And by the way, he, he had a... Um, a hair salon at 694, which was the address on the awning, 694 Madison Avenue in Manhattan. Then it became even more puzzling as to why this awning was outside an auto garage in Queens. I did also realize in that neighborhood there were lots of sign-making shops, places that, you know, said in particular they make awnings. And so, I, you know, I had this idea that maybe, um, you know, maybe maybe someone in that neighborhood, one of the sign shops, made us made this awning for him, and he didn't want it or, or refused to pay for it after it was made or who knows, and so they, they had this extra awning sitting around, and maybe the owner of the garage wanted somewhere to, for his workers to come out and smoke cigarettes when it was raining, and so, you know, made some little deal to get this free awning just to put outside his garage. And so he has this awning from a high-end Manhattan hair salon outside his, you know, grimy, grimy auto garage in Flushing, <laughs> Queens. <laughs> so you're very observant about the physical and natural world around you, as we've just been talking about. But we also touched on this idea of being very attentive to the people that populate these places. And that seems to be a truly central part to your experience and to the documentary film. I want to ask you to talk more about the experience of encountering your fellow humans. Yeah, I don't like, I don't, you know, if you look at my blog, you see it's mostly pictures of things. Um, I don't take a lot of photos of people. And I think I, 
I kind of process the world in this thing central way. Like when other when other people come and walk with me, they they sometimes note that you know they they take more photos of people in there. You know they're looking at what people are wearing and looking at the expressions on people's faces and things like that. And that's something that that I'm not that attuned to. But um, there is just something about you know being out in all these places where so many people live and where even all the things that that you're encountering, you know, outside of a wilderness environment are shaped by people, uh, sometimes very intentionally and sometimes they're the side effects of the way that people live. And so, you know, everything that I'm looking at in New York City is very people-based, even if it's a thing that I'm looking at. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll have questions about the things that I'm seeing and so I'll ask people in the neighborhood about them. That's like a good conversation starter for me. I'm not I'm not the greatest at just going up and talking to someone off the top of my head. But if I have some subject I can talk about, then it's very easy for me. In a way, I get into a lot of conversations with people because of a thing that I was looking at. And so even though I'm not centrally focused on people for their own sake, um, they end up playing this very central role in my experiences in, in many different ways. And, you know, just over time, I mean, over thousands and thousands of miles, you just start to learn some things about people and, and pick up on some things. Um, I, I think that's really one of the greatest um, things about walking in terms of, of its social good is that if you walk a long distance, you're going to end up in areas where people who are not like you live. And even if you're someone like me, who's not the greatest at just starting a million conversations about nothing, um, just from being around people and, and, you know, just saying hello to them on the street and, and having some conversations here and there, but even just, you know, seeing where they live and, and overhearing conversations on the street and seeing the way people decorate their yards and the things they they put on their houses all these things really add up a lot over time. It's kind of this, I don't know, to me it actually feels like a very respectful thing to do, to, to like be spending your free time where somebody else lives just because you're curious about, you know, what life is like there. Um, I mean, that's really a completely human-centered thing to be doing, to just just have this curiosity about how, how different people live and want to experience and, you know, be able to have some empathy um, for, the, for the different ways that people live their lives and to learn things from, from the different ways that people live their lives. Although it's funny, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm talking about the, the ways that people are different, but I think the, the things that always emerge are, you know, whatever surface level differences there are, you know, all people are so similar. In, in so many more ways than they are different, and um, and just those those conversations with different people over the years, really, the thing that they really drive home is how 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 similar we all are, and how um, how how bad stereotypes are in terms of just simply being inaccurate, uh, because you just you know. A given part of the population maybe is 5% more likely to have some character trait than another part of the population. So you might notice that there's an overall slight difference between certain types of people. But, you know, if you meet 10 different people of a certain group or who live in a certain neighborhood or whatever the category is, what you always realize is, oh, they're both 
they're all very different from each other in many ways that make the stereotype stupid, and they're also so similar to the, to each other and to me and to everyone else I know. And so um, it really just the, the the real people-based message of of all the walking is we all want the same things in the world. We all want to feel respected, and we all want to feel loved, and we want people to to care about us and to know who we are and to be interested in us. I think when you take that message to heart, it all of a sudden becomes very easy to relate to all different people around the world. You've used two words, two of my favorite words, curiosity and empathy. And building on what you just said, this show and indeed my conversation, Social Practice Squish Talks, is founded in the simple but profound belief of the importance of conversation to awaken our humanity. And I, I wonder how your thinking on the art and practice of conversation has been shaped by your experiences. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I've certainly, you know, over the years have gotten into all sorts of conversations about all sorts of things. And, um, you know, they there's so many, I mean, conversation it's such a multifaceted thing. You know, sometimes you are acquiring specific pieces of information from somebody that you're looking for. But also a lot of the time, the talking is almost secondary. You know, that the exact words you're saying are secondary to this just social exchange that's occurring between you and somebody else. And you're building this rapport with them on a level that is almost independent from whatever it is that you happen to be talking about. And so I feel like it's such a rich thing because you can you can be very focused on specifically what you're saying, you know, like what we're doing right now. You know, we're, we're really thinking about ideas and, and specific topics. Um, but especially when you're in, in person with somebody, um, you're, the, the conversation also just becomes this tool for just being a human with somebody, you know, being a human with them in the same space and their body, body language and their facial gestures and the way they carry themselves. Um, these are all, you know, also ways of communicating that are all wrapped up in, in this conversation. And so, um, I've gotten so many different things out of different conversations over the years. And sometimes, you know, it is good sometimes just to have these these questions, these dumb little questions I want an answer to, because it just gives me something to say to someone, and that's what kicks off the conversation. You know, you realize that you don't have to have a good start to a conversation to have a good conversation. You just have to, you'd have to start it somehow, but the way you start it's not always that important, you know, because it just gets things rolling, and then, uh, you know, people have this natural inclination to share and to want to express themselves to other people, and so... Um, I, I, I always go back to this one, one time. This taught me a lot about this. Um, this was early in my walk and I have a friend, uh, Yoni, who's a photographer and he's, he's just very good at, at talking to people and just, you know, starting conversations and stuff. And, um, I'd always seen him doing that and I always just thought of that as some skill that I, I would never have. One day he was walking with me and we were actually again in the neighborhood of Flushing, though not in the part with the auto garages. Um, there were these two guys unloading a truck with, uh, like, full slaughtered pigs they were taking to a restaurant. And so it was these guys in these white butcher jackets walking down the street with, like, pigs over their shoulders. 
Yoni, being a photographer, saw this as a, you know, a great photo opportunity. And he runs up to one of the guys. And of course, no one likes someone just snapping photos of them creepily. So he, you know, just very friendly starts a conversation. And he just goes up to him and he says, Oh, you're making me hungry. And I, it was then that I realized that he put no thought into what he's saying. He's just saying a thing to start the conversation. And that really was a, a good learning moment for me that often it's just the tone of your voice that, you know, that conveys as much as the words. From that point on, it became a lot easier for me to, to start conversations with people because I realized what he was doing was just saying something about what they were doing and showing an interest in them and being friendly about it. And I realized that that, that in and of itself is a, a very crucial part of what conversation is. I'm walking, here's the knee, and I'm talking. By you and me, I'm hoping that you come back to me. Mm-hmm. I'm lonely as I can be. I'm waiting for your company. I'm hoping that you come back to me. What you gonna do when a well run dry? You gonna run away and hide. I'm gonna run right by your side. For you, pretty baby, I even die. I'm walking, here's the knee. You're talking there about the creation, the opening up of the potential for new relationships. And, and I think that's been a feature of this this project and, and many others that you've been describing. But then it, it makes me have to ask, you know, a lot of relationships um, become rooted in some way. And I'm wondering about the toll that these projects have had on other relationships that you've had, whether with um, friends or intimate partners, how have those relationships been affected by these projects? Uh, well, so when I was um, when I was living in New York, uh, working as an engineer, um, I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of friends in New York. Um, I was I was in a relationship then, um, and uh, my. Uh, ex-girlfriend, who was, in fact, my ex-fiance. Um, but at, at the time, w- when we were together and living in New York, um, she was in school, and I had my engineering job. And um, I I never had a lot of, um, like, real close friends through work. Um, you know, I was friendly with plenty of people, but for some reason, I, ne- I just never had a lot of, like, close work friendships. And... So I was at work and she was at school, and so we just tended to hang out with her classmates. Um, th- that kind of became my circle of friends. And then um, she and I broke up, so most of the people who I'd spent time hanging out with were kind of on her side of, of that split. And so all of a sudden, I just had a couple of friends in New York. And that was around the same time that I started uh, this walking group, um, when I was still working, but but... I started doing a lot of long walks around New York and I started posting on this events email list that I was going to be doing them and where people could meet if they wanted to join. And so I just started almost from the ground up building all my friendships around walking. Um, so that 
that, I guess, I mean, it was totally unintentional. I didn't even realize that I would meet all these friends doing this. I just thought, oh, maybe it would be fun to have people with me for once because I'd spent so much time walking alone um, earlier on in my life. And so, uh, so I guess, you know, I built a lot of relationships in this, doing this weird thing. I mean, you know, we'd, we'd, I'd meet random people and we'd walk 20 miles on a given day. And um, it's such an unusual but wonderful way to meet people. Because by the end of the first day, you know a lot about them, and you've been through this kind of unique experience together, which really bonds you together. So I guess in some ways, a lot of those friendships were kind of built to accommodate um, me doing this weird project, uh, even though it wasn't intentional. But also, I, I mean, I also was never really a person who, I probably never hung out with my friends in the way that a lot of other people do. Um, you know, I didn't like regularly go to bars and sit around with people or anything like that. So I guess my friends were all, it was always kind of sporadically hanging out and doing odd things. And so, you know, it wasn't so much of a stretch when all of a sudden I was doing this walk and I didn't have money to go to restaurants or bars or anything like that. Cause I'd never, that had never really been how I built friendships to begin with. Um, you know, it also might mean, means now that I, I probably see friends less frequently than I did before, but, um, you know, also I'll then go stay at someone's house for four days and I'll see them all the time and I'll know, I'll get to know very intimate things about them that other people don't like, you know, what pajamas they wear and what they look like when they're brushing their teeth at night. So it's certainly a different, uh, different way of, of having a friendship. I still feel, you know, very close to all the, all the people that I did before. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe they would feel differently. I don't know if maybe some, some of them resent it or something. I'm not sure. But my knowledge, it seems, it seems to be working out pretty well. And then in terms of like romantic relationships, um, that's a, you know, a difficult thing. Um, because I'm so involved in this project and I'm often staying in different parts of the city that might be far, far away. Um, so that makes it tough to, to have a ro- romantic relationship. I met, um, one wonderful woman um, doing the walk, in fact, and, and, you know, we started dating. We dated for a couple of years, and, um, you know, like she says in, in the movie, the uh, the walk is kind of the thing that both drew us together and, and split us apart. Um, but uh, I don't know. I guess I've also, I, I just, as a younger person, I had this really... Um, insurmountable fear of of not having a you know a partner when when I grew up of not not having someone to be with um I don't feel that way anymore um I, you know I, I I've just become I don't know I feel I feel very um uh, fulfilled by what I'm doing now in a way that I've never experienced before so that that fear of being alone uh is not there anymore and so the the incessant need to to be dating somebody and to find somebody is just not there for me right now so while it makes it makes romantic relationships difficult it also makes me not worried about them to me in some ways you seem to have flourished and unfolded over your life and into this project with a fearlessness 
and uh, a fearlessness in the face of the world and a great openness to it in in many ways and i'm wondering if that is an attitude that has enabled you to travel into places where perhaps you might not to the outside observer the objective observer fit in some way and I don't know if that's a privilege or it's an attitude of openness that makes that feasible. How do you think about that ability to step into a world that perhaps is not stereotypically open to many of us? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think kind of all of, all of the above in terms of, of what you were saying might be the reason for that. I mean, um, you know, the the more you walk around in different areas and places where you you don't fit in, um, the more you realize that you do fit in. You know that that like I said, people are all the same. You you can have something to talk to people about. Um, you know, regardless of who they are, and so that kind of removes some of the fear, and that makes it easier to relate to and be open to people because you don't have that surface level fear that you that's always on your mind um and so it it makes it a little bit easier to just be there and and you know especially that realization that people want to feel respected and they want to feel um heard and they want to feel like people are interested in them that makes it really easy because then you can just go ask people about themselves and that makes you fit in very quickly because people love being asked about themselves and um so that's a a tool that i learned that you know, first first came the experience, which reduced some of the fear, and then came the realization of of how to make people comfortable around me, and the realization that that's already there because people already have this desire to to tell you about themselves, and so all you have to do is ask them some questions. And there's certainly uh, a privilege aspect to it, also. Um, you know, being both white and male. Um, I don't, I don't have to worry as much about people perceiving me as a threat, which is obviously a very dangerous thing to many, you know, many black people, many, um, you know, people really of, of any color other than white, um, are, are much more likely in America to be perceived as a threat, which then becomes a very dangerous thing to them because, um, you know, as soon as someone's scared of you, then, then you become in danger. And so that's not something that, it's not that it's, it's not that I'm not aware of it at all, but it's not something that I have to keep on the top of my mind in a way that it, it is for people of other races. Um, you know, I mean, women just, just from, from talking to other, other women walkers, um, there is also a, a kind of constant calculation going on in their minds about what is this person up to, you know, what, what position am I putting myself in by being here? And I'm sure there are lots of people who, you know, lots of guys out on the street who were very friendly to me, but might have been less welcoming or, you know, might have been threatening in some way if I were a woman. You know, all of these, of course, are things I'm, I'm kind of speculating on because I don't have the experience of being in, in, in any category other than myself. But, you know, I've, I've now heard enough other stories and enough other people's perspectives to be aware that, um, that there's certainly a, a great privilege, um, for me, you know, being, being who I am that allows me to do things that, that other people might not be able to. 
But at the same time, I do know that we are all afraid of more than we need to be afraid of. Even if you are not someone who has, has the privilege that I do, um, and, and has to be worried about more things than I do, there are still things that you're worried about that you don't need to be. Like, that's the kind of constant theme I hear from other people. Um, people who, who do a lot of traveling, a lot of long walking is that people are, are better than you think that they would be. You know, even if it's more difficult for you than it is for me, the lesson you come away with is, is people are better than you expected. And so I think for all of us, there's a, a lesson to be learned in, in figuring out that at least a good chunk of our fears are unfounded. People are kinder on the whole than you expect. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. I have been in conversation with Matt Green, the subject of the new documentary film, The World Before Your Feet. Matt, this has been a, a really wonderful conversational excursion with you. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for the great questions. Happy walking. Thank you, sir. Happy walking to you as well. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>